podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome. I'm Les Bubka and you're listening to Accidental Podcast or something like that. In this episode, I've got the pleasure to chat with uh, Sensei Mike Clark. Uh, Sensei Mike uh, is uh, at the moment <coughs> retired from the public. He's uh, living in Australia and training his dojo. Um, this episode going to be uh, I'm just a student. Um, his philosophy is uh, focus on training. Um, he had enough of people asking him to um, create association, uh, get their affiliation. Uh, this is a fantastic uh, person to talk to. His um, <clears throat> descriptions of, of his adventures and life is mesmerizing. It took us over two hours to record this episode with mainly me listening and being mesmerized. Um, we're going through the <clears throat> Mike's story. Uh, Mike was born in Ireland, moving to UK, uh, being a troublesome teenager, fighting everywhere, ending up in imprisonment, um, coming out from the prison, joining karate, ending up in Okinawa, knocking at the doors of Higaona sensei and having a tea with his mother. Uh, I think that's interesting in itself. Um, ending up being a, a, journal, a journalist for a martial arts um, magazines, writing and becoming an author of um, books. Uh, some of his work is The Art of Hojo Undo, which probably most of the Kojuru people know. Uh, Redemption and Shinji Tai. Uh, I highly recommend those books um, and all the work of uh, Mike. Uh, I really, really enjoyed listening to Mike's stories and the way he's um, talking about it, his honesty and outlook on uh, the world of karate and realism involved in it. I hope you're gonna enjoy it uh, and without further ado, um, let's listen. Uh, hello, Susan Mike. Uh, I'm glad that you uh, donated your time to talk to me. Um, and it's a pleasure. Uh, we have a common friend, uh, James Hatch, yeah. Uh, yeah. and actually, uh, I think Paul Enfield as well. Uh, you, we were friends with Paul Enfield as well. Um, it's great to have you. Um, how are you today? I'm good, thank you, and thanks for um, inviting me on. And uh, thanks, you know, shout out to James for putting us together. So um, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's um, just after seven o'clock in the evening here where I am in Western Australia. So it's been a good day, a bit warm, a bit humid, but yeah, good. So I, I, I um, read your um, bio and it's an a, a impressive story and fascinating story. Um, could you um, shed some light on your background in martial arts and in general. I know you, you were born in Ireland and then moved to UK, then end up in Okinawa and now you're in Australia. So you are a citizen of the world. Yeah, I don't really know what I am. 
you know. <laughs> uh, born in Ireland, grew up in England, uh, Australian citizenship, so I guess, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, I was born in Dublin in 1955, in May 1955. Uh, when I was about three years old, my family migrated to England. We settled in Manchester, so I grew up in Manchester. Um, and lived there till I was about well late twenties, something twenty seven, twenty eight, something like that, and then moved to Australia. Um, as far as karate is concerned, um, I started training. I can tell you exactly. It was the it was January nineteen seventy four. Um, before karate. Um, I was already into fighting. I like to fight. I like to fight on the streets and uh, football matches and pubs, clubs, anywhere you could, anywhere you could do it. So that's what I did. But of course, if you're doing that seriously, then you end up, um, you know, coming to the attention of the police, which I did. I had a long track record of arrests and court appearances for violence and. Um, yeah, well, you don't get arrested if you lose a fight. You don't get arrested if you if you if you win. So, anyway, long story short, by the time I was seventeen, I was facing two years uh, prison for GBH, ABH. Um, I can't remember. It's a long time ago. So I actually had my 18th birthday in Strange Ways Prison in Manchester, and um, so that was an education. That was the time when Bruce Lee was just hitting the, the 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 Western world. All these movies were coming out, but I didn't know anything about it because I was locked away. So in those days in prison, you didn't have televisions, you didn't have radios, you didn't you got one letter a fortnight and one visit on the opposite fortnight. So uh, you know. So you had like a letter one week, a visit the next, a letter the next week, so like that. So you're you were very limited. You didn't get newspapers. Um, so you're, you know, you're, what was going on outside was limited to what you heard when you had visits, and all the letters, of course, were censored. So you know, you would get a letter, and there'd be all holes cut out of it, mm -hmm. and. So, um, yeah, so I knew nothing about Bruce Lee when I came out, but um, my friends were all, my friends were all talking about it when I did when I did get out, and they were talking. Most of them were doing kung fu by then, or karate, or something like that. And so, um, my closest friend at the time, John, who's, who's since passed, um, he said, "Why don't you come down to our karate club?" You know, so I went, okay, whatever. So I actually went with the idea of, of having a fight with the instructor and seeing how good this karate stuff was. Mm -hmm. um, that, so that was my attitude going down there. But when I saw him, I, when we walked into the dojo, um, he was sparring with one of the students. You know, and this back in those days, you know, in the early 70s, there wasn't black belts everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, so my teeth. The man who became my teacher, Mr. Vickers, he was he was second down at the time, which was a quite a senior, you know, grade. He was sparring with one of the students who had just 
left the army who was um, a paratrooper in the army so and he was a brown belt and the two of them were going at it you know really quite hard and so I just that's what the first karate I saw live was these two guys going mad at each other mm -hmm. um, so I just sort of stood there and, and kept quiet and thought well maybe I won't have a fight. <laughs> Maybe I won't pick a fight after all. I'll just be quiet. And and um, yeah. So then I, I joined. I joined that dojo that night. And um, so again, you know, uh, just fell in. Just loved it. That was um, yeah. That was January nineteen seventy four, and um, haven't stopped. So, but that was. Um, Tanihashi Toryu, which is Shukokai, the organization is Shukokai, so everybody kind of calls it Shukokai, but the actual system is a style of Shitoryu, Mr. Tani Shitoryu. Um, so I stayed training in that, in that uh, system for about 10 years. Um, after about six years, um, I, I moved on from Vickers Sensei, Mr. Vickers, um, mainly because I, I was, you know, I was still young now, still in my early 20s. I'd already made it to the um, uh, the English uh, squad and the team for the Shukakai, um, taking part in tournaments around Britain and Europe and stuff within the Shukakai. So I was, you know, I was really getting into it and... Um, about that time, one of the Japanese sensei who was based in Europe moved to England and settled in England. So I don't know if you've heard of uh, Tomiyama sensei, Keiji Tomiyama sensei. Oh yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, so he, uh, so he moved to England at that time, and um, and so I started going. He was he was based at that time down in Nottingham. I was up in Manchester. Um, Oh no, sorry, Leicester. He was Leicester. He was based, but he had a dojo in Nottingham. So uh, I used to go down there two or three weekends a month. I would also uh, invite him to come up to Manchester every six weeks or so, and he would come up and train and stay stay at my place overnight, and then then he'd drive home the next day. So it, it my training kind of went more that way with him. So. Um, uh, Mr. Vickers and I stopped training, very friendly, no arguments, no anything. So um, so then I became a student of Tomiyama Sensei and, um, and yeah, got, you know, got deeper into it. But because of my background with all the street fighting and everything, I never, you know, it, it didn't dawn on me that this tournament stuff was like fighting. Mm -hmm. it was a sport it was a you know i mean you could get injured if you were unlucky or something and i saw lots of people get injured and i got you know smashed in the mouth and you get broken noses and stuff like that and cracked ribs and things but nobody got killed nobody got seriously hurt um unless there was a freak accident so but as time went by i was getting more and more disillusioned with with the karate I was doing. And um, so a friend of mine who happened to be doing Gojuru in Manchester, 
uh, he he said that the the chief instructor from their group, Higona uh, um, Mario Sensei, was coming to England to do the thing, and he was doing a three day seminar in Liverpool or two day seminar in Liverpool. Would I like to go? So, yeah, yeah, I'll go. And by then, I was already going over to Liverpool once a week to train at Terry O'Neill since his dojo. Mm -hmm. um, he had a black belt class on a Wednesday night. So I had some Shotokan friends that I would, I would go over there with them. So I knew Terry quite well. And um, he was kind of hosting this thing, I think. and uh, Or maybe he wasn't, but I don't know. It was a long time ago. But anyway, I went there. I certainly know Terry was there because we partnered up a few times during, over the weekend for various things. And and I watched Higona since then, you know, this Okinawan karate and the way he was, you know, grabbing, grabbing people and, you know, poking eyes and doing all sorts of stuff. And I thought, wow, this is, this is closer to what I was, you know, that appealed to me. Um, so, about a year later, I was at his dojo in Okinawa, knocking on the door. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen the BBC many years ago put out a series called Way of the Warrior. Yeah, I love that. And, I had it on the, on the, on yeah, the pirate, well, the, pirate by EHS in Poland. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, uh, the, um, the program that dealt with karate covered uh, Higona Sensei at his dojo. And that, that stuck in my head and I was thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I decided I would I would stop trading Shitoryu. And again, you know, uh, separated from Tommy Amasensei quite amicably. All, and we're still good friends to this day, Tommy Amasensei and I. And he comes out, he has students here and he comes out, you know, COVID's not doing what it's doing. He comes out here every May for a week or so and... I always go and train with him and, um, you know, there's, there's no non-nastiness or anything. But I had to I had to stop doing the shitoryu because I would have just stopped doing karate altogether. It was getting too, it was too sporty and too, um, what's the word? For me, it, it seemed too stylized. It didn't, it seemed, it seemed to be getting, stepping away all the time from, from karate, like, combat you know it was well you you know my, my karate works as long as you know how to attack me properly um that kind of stuff so it's getting more like choreography for me and i didn't i didn't really like that so yeah so um i'd left i'd left manchester at that time I was living in jersey you know the channel islands yeah yeah and uh, so I, I was living there and training there with a man called dave moss who was a fourth down in Shitoryu in Shubukai. So I was training there with him. And then I got the opportunity to go to Japan. It just fell, you know, just came about. And so I thought, well, Tommy Amasensi had actually gone back to Japan at that point because his father was ill and as the eldest son, he had to go back and look after the, the um, family business. Uh, he didn't know when he was coming back to England. He ended up staying in Japan for about four years, but, um, you know, before he came back. But so Tommy Amasensu had gone back to Japan. Um, I'd done my training. I had that weekend in Liverpool with Higona Sensei. Now I've got a chance to go to Japan. Where do I go? Do I go to Tommy Amasensu in um, 
Osaka, or do I go to Okinawa where that Higonosensei lives? So he was like, now I thought, well, you know, Tomiyama Sensei, this is the way I rationalized it anyway. Tomiyama Sensei is really busy, very busy running a family business. You know, if I just turn up and say, I'm here, look at, you know, train me. That didn't, that didn't really fit well with me. And I was also, you know, just kind of over story by then. So I thought, oh no, I'll go to Okinawa. So my then uh, fiance, who's been my wife for nearly 40 years, but um, we just said, yeah, we'll go to Okinawa. So we just booked, we just booked flights to Okinawa. And uh, I didn't know where he lived. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know if he'd be there. But I thought, how hard could it be to find this guy? He's really famous. He's been on the BBC. Everybody will know him. So <laughs> that's what we did. And in those days as well, it was quite a journey. I think it was 32 hours to get from London to Okinawa. So um, we had yeah, lots of flights London to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Dubai, Dubai to Bangkok, Bangkok to Taiwan, Taiwan. So it took a long time to get there. And um, we, we got there in the evening, uh, it was late, just said to the taxi driver, take us to a Western hotel. He took us to a hotel. Um, we booked in for the night um, and just fell asleep you know, exhausted. So um, the next morning I jumped up, uh, went downstairs, got the phone book. Uh, Japanese phone books only, they don't give the addresses or anything. They give the name, phone number and the district, like the suburb. I didn't know where he lived. I just lived, knew he lived in Okinawa. I didn't even know he lived in Naha, like the, the you know, the, mm -hmm. the main city. So I couldn't make head in the sense, <laughs> head in the tails of this thing. So I asked the guy behind the the, the the counter at the hotel if he could, could you please look in here and see if you can find a, a Mr. Higona in Karate Dojo. <laughs> so, you know, the name Higona in Okinawa is a bit like Smith in England or Jones in Wales. You know, it's like I, I there's a lot of Higonas. <laughs> so, but anyway, he found it. He found one. And he found a listing and he said, yes, it's in this district called Makishi. And I didn't know where that, that was. So he out and uh, because it's a hotel, there's always a line of taxis kind of hanging around outside. Mm -hmm. He called a taxi up and uh, he explained where he, he wanted, uh, you know, he, he, we wanted to go to. And he, then he, he said, how much is it going to cost? Because taxi drivers are notorious for... Um, well, they were back then, you know, they, you jump in the cab yeah. and you may be only going like half a mile and they drive five miles to get there. Mm. And uh, you don't know any better. So he, uh, he, told, he told us how much it should cost. Don't pay him any more. So um, now I know the place because I've been back there. You know, I can't remember how many times I've been to Rocky now, but many, many times. So now I know the place really really well but back then i didn't know where i was going but as it happened he did take the most direct route but he just dropped us off on the main road oh, and he okay. just pointed 
he just pointed across the street and said, Makishi. So that didn't really help. We crossed the road and um, I don't know if you've ever been to Japan, Les, but... No, no, I haven't. You, we, you get... we, try, we try to get to, to uh, Japan, but then Fukushima came. Uh, ah, right, yeah. And then we tried to go to Australia, but then the fire, you had fires there. So um, we've been told by our friends we should not make plans. Because wherever we want to go, it disaster strikes. So. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the thing is, if you come off the main road in Japan, if you come off a main street, you're really into what we would call alleyways. You know, they're very tight little, and they seem to go off in all sorts of directions. It's, it's not really built on a grid pattern, you know, north, left, north, mm -hmm. south, east, west. But we, we found we found his dojo within about 15 minutes of getting out of the taxi. We found a dojo. And I remembered there was a shot in that program where the warrior of Higona Sensei coming down the stairs because he lived above the dojo. His dojo is actually the converted garage of his house. I remember him coming down the stairs and I thought, oh, you know, I'll remember that doorway if I see it. There's a million doorways, right? So anyway, we just happened to be walking down this street and lo and behold, there I saw the place and I, this is it. And um, I went to the door, it was like thick glass doors and I could hear somebody training inside, but you couldn't see in. So I kind of tapped on the on the door and then this guy opens the door slid open and this guy opened the door, this really, you know, rough looking guy. <laughs> and um, asked me what I wanted and I said I would want to speak to Higona since he said come back at four o'clock. Well, it was only about nine, eight, eight or nine o'clock in the morning then and I thought I can't hang around all day. Um, a because the hotel was costing us an arm and a leg, and we, you know, we had, we didn't have that much money, and um, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to walk upstairs and knock on his door. That's so we great. walked upstairs. Yeah, so we walked upstairs. I knocked on his door, and he wasn't home, but his mum answered the door, <laughs> and I tried to explain him what little Japanese I had that I was looking for Higona Sensei. So she waved us in and made us a cup of tea and gave us some biscuits and got on the phone to her son. And um, he was married to, or he still is married to an American lady. And she got on the phone. So we explained who we were and what we were doing. She, she thought we were nuts. We couldn't <laughs> believe we'd actually got there and found the actual dojo because even Japanese students from the mainland got lost. They couldn't find his dojo. So the fact we found it was pretty good. So um, he said, yeah, okay. she said, well, since he'll be, he's, he's leaving now, he'll be there in like 10, 15 minutes. So wow, great. So we finished our tea and didn't want to be, you know, overstay our welcome. We said we'd wait outside and we did. We, we, went downstairs. By that time, the student who'd been training had left. So we kind of just sat inside the dojo. And within a couple of minutes, the door slid back open again and he walked to Gona Sensei and 
and that was that. We started talking. His English wasn't too bad, and my Japanese was terrible, but we got through it. <laughs> and I said I'd been training with him the year before in Liverpool, and and um, so I said okay. And then he asked me all about my history and what am I doing there? What did I want to do? So I told him all that. And he asked me where we were staying. I told him that, and he said, "Oh, that's expensive." And it was. So he said, "I can fix you up with somewhere else." So he he fixed us up with a a little um, place, what they call a minchku, which is um, it's not a flash place, but it you know it's good. It's a bit like a youth hostel or something like that would be. Um, so it was cheap and it was clean and it was. Um, within easy walking of the dojo, so 15 minute walk to the dojo, so great. So he set us up with that and um, and just said, yeah, come to the dojo tomorrow, we start. In those days he was training twice a day. So he'd train at, I think it was eight o'clock, 7.30 or eight o'clock in the morning um, to about 10. And then in the evening, again, I think seven or 7.30, till it was supposed to be till about 10 but often especially on a friday night it would go on till like two in the morning or something mm-hmm. so um so yeah so i just did that and got you know got into the gojuru that way so we managed to drag it out for about six weeks before we ran out of money and we just ran out of money and that was it we, we couldn't i think we left we had about 17 yen in our pocket so 17 yen's about, I don't know, it's not even not even 5p. <laughs> so, but anyway, so that's how I got into Gojuru and um, became a student of Higona Sensei, came back to England, moved to North Devon, lived in North Devon for about five or six years, um, became part of the, the Higona Sensei's group in England, but you know, I'm not really a, I'm not really an organisational person. I'm not a, I'm not a team player. I don't really, you know, I don't really like relying on other people. You know, for what, for my, for me getting, doing what I need to do. I don't really like to rely on some other guy to do their thing properly or what. So, uh, but I was happy to be a part of the group in the sense that they were supporting Higona Sensei. So. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't a great kind of, you know, I just went and attended the, the function, like the trainings and stuff like that. I, you know, I wasn't part of the, I wasn't part of the, the, the click or anything like that. And, um, and after a while, after, I, I'm not sure how long after about maybe six or seven years. I mean, I, I, I went, I still went and trained with Higona Sensei when Higona Sensei moved to Japan, to, to Tokyo prior to moving to America. I went to train with him. I spent three weeks with him in Japan. I went trained with him in Europe. When he came to Europe, I trained with him in um, New Zealand. And, you know, so I, I'd go where that, you know, I was there because I was a student of his. I was interested in what I was learning, that relationship between me and him. I wasn't interested in having a position in an organization or, I didn't want to be, you know, a chief instructor or a whatever, all those other things they have. Um, that didn't interest me at all. So, um, but of course that rubbed people, you know, up the wrong way. So, 
Um, so eventually, you know, eventually that kind of killed it for me. And I just said, oh, I can't, I, you know, I can't do this anymore. And he gone since he didn't appear to be in a position to do anything, which always struck me as a bit strange. You know, if you're the head of the thing and, and people are behaving a bit strangely, you would think that you would be able to do something about that. But he, I, for whatever I have, reason. I have to say that uh, I left the organization for the very same reason. Um, it, it really um, resonates with me, what you're saying about mm. the organizations. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you can't change the world, but you can always change your world, mm -hmm. you know. So it's kind of impossible to change people's minds. You know, they don't want changing. They're doing it the way they want to do it. So why would they change? But you can change your surroundings and the people you interact with. And, and uh, so a good friend of mine, uh, another good friend of mine, um, was doing Gojuru, a man called Richard Barrett. And um, he'd lived at the Jundokam for about six months. Um, and he was teaching um, their kind of Gojuru in England. And um, um, so he suggested maybe I, you know, go to the Jundokam. So we organized that. He, he got me an introduction. I wrote a letter to Miyazato Sensei and um, anyway, so back in then, so that ended up in 1992. I went to the Jundokan and uh, began training with Miyazato Sensei. It's kind of funny really as well, because, um, you know, I, I had to, uh, he, he, he sat me down and, you know, wanted to know what I've been doing and all the rest of it. Well, of course, in spite of what, and, you know, I don't even like the word controversial because to me, it's just is what it is. And if people want to get all iffy about it, that's their decision. But, you know, he got a sense of for some, well, I know the reasons, but it's not appropriate to go into them here. But um, for some reason, he cut, he's, he's, he's cut Miyazato Sensei out of his history, but he's actually a student of Miyazato Sensei. Mm -hmm. And um, he started, you know, learning his karate from Miyazato Sensei. When he went to uh, Miyagi Sensei's garden dojo, Miyagi Sensei was dead by then. Miyazato Sensei had taken over the instruction. Um, so he was the Sensei, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so anybody who trained there were training with Miyazato, you know, under Miyazato Sensei's direction. He may have trained with one of the other seniors or something like that as a main kind of mentor or something, but the the dojo head was Miyazato Sensei. So anyway, and then when when they stopped training in the garden and, and Miyazato Sensei built the Jundokan, not very far away, maybe only about half a mile away or something, they all went there and all the training equipment, all the tools for training, the chishi, everything went over there and everybody went there training and Higuna Sensei went there training too. And when Higuna Sensei went to Tokyo to university, um, he opened up a branch dojo that, excuse me, any gradings or anything he did um, up in Tokyo had to be referred back down to the Jundokan and then Miyazato Sensei signed the certificate. So if that's not being, a, you know what I mean? If that's not being a student of his, I don't know what, what, it, what is. 
Um, so the fact that he's he kind of cut all that out um, and that he has an Ichi Miyagi sensei as, as, as his mentor, his, his sensei and all that kind of thing, you know, you, you'd have to ask somebody from their group, the IOGKF or... or you know, you'd have to ask them why they've done all that, but it's not un—it's not unusual. This is a very common thing for people to um, retailer their history, you know, to suit and bring people in and and cut people out, and you know, they'll say things like, "Oh, I trained with Sensei So and So." The truth is, they did, but they were in a hall with three hundred other people, yeah. you know, for like like a a week long course or something. And yeah, so they did train with him, but did they train with him? I don't know. That's for me. That's not training with somebody. That's just been in the same room. So anyway, I, I joined the uh, Jundokan at that point. I'm still with the Jundokan. So, but I don't. Um, I don't hold any office. I don't. I don't. You know, I don't. Um, I don't grade any. You know, I don't do gradings for people. Or, run seminars or anything i don't do any of that i'm really not interested in that side of karate so so yes i've been just doing doing gojuru quietly since then and um yeah and then into, um, my work my job i don't work anymore um but for over 30 years i was um, freelancing for martial arts magazines all around the world so um, that got me into lots of different dojos, with, you know, because I, I wasn't turning up there as a karateka who worked to train. I was turning up there as a journalist who was interviewing people and or writing features about things and stuff like that. So, um, yes, I was doing that and that led, you know, I had several books published on karate and... Um, so I did all that side of it as well, you know, the, the um, I guess you call it Bumbu Ryodo, where they, you know, you have the, you have the, the, um, the training physical side of it, but you also have the study side of it and the, mm -hmm. the um, academic side of it, if you like. So, so yeah, so my life's been pretty wrapped up with karate since I've been 18 and I'm 66 in May, so um, however long that is. But it, also one of the people I met back in 2006 in Okinawa was uh, Akimini Hiroshi Sensei from Kobudo. Um, and I just went there to inter interview him. But we're about the same age. I think he's about six or seven months older than me. Um, and he's just a really nice guy. He's, he's, you know, he's a really nice person, and um, and he's he's uh, Kobudo's wonderful. So um, he said to me, just jokingly after the interview, and everything was obvious. Oh, do you want to try, you know, uh, Kobudo? I said, oh yeah, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, I'll oh, come to the dojo tomorrow then. It's Kobudo because he also does karate. He does a he does um, uh, uh, should it take karate as well? So he, uh, some nights in his dojo they're doing karate, some nights they're doing kobudo. So he said, "Yeah, it's kobudo tomorrow, so why don't you come?" So I said, "Okay, I'll come." So I, it was just great. I really liked it. I like kobudo. Uh, I'm not very good, but I like it. 
and um, and so I've been doing kobudo since 2006. Um, and so when I go to Okinawa, I I train at the Jundokan, except for the nights where uh, at the Shimbukan they're doing kobudo. Then I go I go there and do the kobudo. Mm. So so that's what I do. And um, so going back to the fascinating story, by the way. Um, Sorry, I talk no, too much. No, no, no. I'm, I'm Irish, right? So, you know, <laughs> we get when we're babies, we, we get our vaccines with a gramophone needle. We don't get them with a normal needle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, James was saying similar things and James uh, likes to talk as well. Yeah, but I, I like it, you know, it saves me talking because my English is not uh, up to scratch and the way I'm better speaking. my Polish players. <laughs> I heard that all the time. But coming coming back to your um your time in the prison, you said that uh, then you went yeah. with the same mindset to the dojo. So did you, it must have been difficult to be in a prison so young. Um, did that change your mind on on, on fighting and, and life or didn't change at all for you? Oh yeah, it did. It did. I had to, that was to me that was the bottom, and I'd reached the bottom because before then, for about you know I left school at fifteen, which was the earliest you could leave back then. I don't know where it is now, but um, so I couldn't get out of school quick enough. Not because I didn't like it, but because I was bored by, I was just bored by by the whole thing, and even though I was in. Again, I don't know what they do, but back in those days, they used to stream the kids, what they call stream the kids. So you'd have like four classes in each year. Mm -hmm. And uh, two of those classes, there were streaming kids towards uh, getting O-levels, A-levels, going on to uni, stuff like that. And the other kids were, you know, just like, have you ever thought of bricklaying or joinery? And, mm -hmm. you know, that it, it's social engineering, really. But anyway, so I was always in the A stream. So I was always supposed to go that way, but it just bored the bejeepers out of me. So I left as soon as I could. And um, and I did an apprenticeship at a five-star restaurant in Manchester as a chef. And by the time I got to doing my finals for that, I was just left cold by that too. I was completely bored. And so I never did my final, so I never qualified as a chef either. So very wasteful, really. But in that time, you know, from leaving school, 15 to 17, I think I was just so frustrated and not happy, you know. And and um, and so it manifests itself in in um, you know bad behaviour. And where we grew, where I grew up in, in a inner city part of Manchester called Cheltenham Medlock, which back then was all, you know, like Coronation Street. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all like terrace rows of old Victorian housing, what they call two up, two down. So it was two rooms on the ground floor, two rooms on the top floor and an attic. And in that, and it had one cold, one cold tap in the scullery and the toilet was outside in the backyard. Um, so I had my mom, dad and six, you know, five siblings and me mm -hmm. living in that. So um, we were pretty poor, although my dad had a great job. You know, he, he worked for the railway. He was a very skilled um, engineer and everything. He had, he, had, he had degrees from Rolls Royce engines and all sorts of things. But 
there's only so much you can do on one wage, right? And um, so, you know, that environment, it wasn't a great environment. Um, the house, the home life was great. You know, I had a fabulous childhood. My mum and dad were absolutely the best in the world. It was just a mad, crazy Irish family, you know, everybody was just joking and mucking around and, you know, it was just, yeah, it was great. Very supportive, very loved. And, um, but the environment, the greater environment outside the door, you know, Cheltenham Medlock, you know, we used to have prostitutes working across the street. We had a illegal drinking thing at the end of the street. We had, this was before even like uh, bookmakers were legal. You know, you didn't have betting shops in those days back in the sixties. So, you had illegal betting shops down back alleys and things like that, where you used to have people standing on corners, keeping a lookout for the cops and all that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of neighborhood it was. So it was quite easy to get into, fall into fighting because everybody, you know, everybody, if, if you had a pair of shoes, somebody pinch him off you or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I, I just found that I quite like fighting. And then after about a year, I found out something really important that when somebody hits you, it doesn't really hurt you. It might, it hurts afterwards when everything swells up, but it doesn't hurt you at the time because you're, you're, you know, you're pumped with adrenaline and everything. And, and that was almost like a shield knowing that oh, it doesn't, it, I don't care if he punches me in the face, he's not going to hurt me. I'm still going to kill him, mm -hmm. you know, not literally kill him, but that, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that was a great thing, and then and I liked it. I, I really liked it. And and whenever I was on the wrong side of, of it, um, I took that as you know that was a real lesson for me. I thought, what did he do? What was I doing wrong there? What? How did he? How did he pick me up and throw me off that balcony? Mm -hmm. You know what? What was going on there? Why did I let him do that? So, you know, I'd wait for a couple of months and then go and find him again and throw him off the balcony. Hmm. But anyway. Uh, prison, yeah, prison wasn't good. Strange ways is, I, I think that's the, with the exception of being a drug addict or maybe an alcoholic or something, I think spending your life in prison is probably the worst way to spend your existence that I can think of because it's like going to another universe. Mm -hmm. um, when you're on the other side of that wall, the people are just not normal. I was, I was the only guilty person in there. Everybody I met was innocent. Everybody was innocent. The only reason they, was there, they were there is because they got grassed up or, or, you know, the cops were, the cops were crooked or something like that. And, I, and I'd point out to them that this was their fourth time inside. Mm -hmm. And you think they're just terribly unlucky or, or maybe it's something they're doing. And, mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, it, it, it wasn't nice. It was a it was a real wake up call, um, and just things that you have to do. They don't do it now. I don't know. I don't know if you were in England at the time, but um, about twenty years ago, they had a massive riot in Strangeways, and the prisoners took over the whole prison, and they were up on the roof for like about two or three weeks, and they burnt half the place down, and God knows what. Uh, and it changed, it, it, it brought about lots of reforms in, in the, the way prisoners are kept in, in Britain. But prior to that, they had a thing called slopping out. So you went in your cell. These are all Victorian cells, you know, like nothing had changed since 
the 1800s. So you locked in your cell at nine o'clock and, um, oh no, sorry, not nine o'clock. Nine o'clock is when the lights were out, but um, you, were, you were locked in it whenever you came back from your work. And you had like a, just a pot to go to the toilet in. So because I was in there for violence, I was lucky I got a cell to myself because they, they couldn't trust trust you being locked in with somebody else if you turned violent, you know, and turned on the other guy. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky I had a cell to myself. But most of those cells had like three and four people in a cell and their cells are not very big. Mm -hmm. um, so you can imagine that you're stuck in this room for a long time and there's three other guys who, who want to go to the toilet. You can imagine what the smell and the stink and everything is. Yeah. And it's people don't like that. But in the morning, they'd open you up and you had to slop out. So halfway down the wing, there was a recess that had uh, a huge big sink, like a stone trough thing in it. And everyone would just line up and throw all their slops out. Mm. Beside that was a toilet. But there was no... Uh, there was no, it wasn't in a cubicle or anything where you could go in and close the door. Mm -hmm. So if, if people wanted to, if people couldn't use the, the, the pot inside the cell of the night and they wanted to go to the toilet, they had to sit on the toilet in front of everybody mm. and go to the toilet. It's, it's dehumanizing, really. But these are the sorts of things that you have to get used to in prison because there's no other, that, that was it. That was your reality. You had to get used to, uh, prison wardens who they had their own bar in inside the prison and at lunchtime they'd go and have a few pints of beer mm. so in the afternoon they'd get quite stroppy with people and you know you, the result of that is is what it was you know somebody would fight back and then they would get hammered and and um so it wasn't a great place and I, I, there's a one of the books I wrote is called Redemption, and um, and I talk. It's about that. It's about that time before I started karate and and that first ten years when I was training Shatoryu. So it covers that time period, about a fifteen year time period. And I I talk quite a lot then about in that book about um, about my time inside, but um, it wasn't nice. And I I, I know things improved now but um it still wouldn't be a nice place to be well, because of the the mentality of the people you're surrounded by um they're peculiar that's the only way i can say that they they're, they're very low iq um not everybody obviously there's people there's people in there that are in there um you know for i don't know silly reasons but generally, the, the the recidivists, you know, the people who are back there all the time, yeah. they're very, very strange people. They don't see the world through the same lens as everybody else. They're, they're childlike mm -hmm. and spiteful and mean and vindictive and go out of their way to, to make it unpleasant for people. So the only thing you can do is play them at their game and, and make it make it clear to them that if you if they mess with you then they will pay for it so i was quite happy to do that you know because i was in there for violence so that was you know that was a reflection of the kind of person i was back then 
And uh, I was quite happy, you know, if somebody upset me, I was quite happy to let them know they shouldn't have done it. And um, so after a month in Strange Ways, I, um, every, everybody in Manchester or around the Northwest at that time, if you, if you got sent down, you either went to, um, I think it's Bootle or something in Liverpool, or you went to Strange Ways in Manchester. You were kept there for about a month while you went through various assessments and they got a handle on what you were like or, and, and then they would decide to farm you off out to different prisons and hostels or wherever you were going. So um, I was sent to a place near Wigan called Hindley. And at that time it was labeled as a borstal. It was really a, a, what they call a young offenders prison. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time also, it was, it was the place where when, when uh, people had been sent to Borstal and they were proving to be really bad in the Borstal, like uncontrollable, they sent them to Hindley. So it was the place that housed the worst of the worst from all over England. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, so I went there. And, um, you know, and then you start all over again, man, because there's a whole, there's a whole new thing. Every wing has what they, they, they used to call them daddies. Like they were the, like the head, you know, the head guy, the hard guy who mm -hmm. thought he ruled, ruled the wing. And he had all the rackets going, the cigarette rackets and the sweets and the tobacco and the toothpaste. And he had all those things going and the bullying and all that lot. So um yeah so i had a few run-ins with there and i was only in there 10 days and then i got um had a fight with someone and and um broke their fingers and pulled a big had a when they dragged me off him i had half his scalp in my hand still um so because he spat on me so you either take that or you do something about it Sure. So, so then I got 10 days in the block. So I was only in the place for 10 days and then I got 10 days in the block. Now, we, normally if you got sentenced to the block, you got sent there for like, like four days was a, a long time in the block because in the block, you're in a very, very small room. Mm -hmm. You can just about lie down in it. And there's an orange light on 24 hours a day. And you're only, you only get out of that room for an hour once a day. And you're, you're kept in absolute silence. Um, during the day, there's a small there's a small chair and a small table, a jug of water, and a book, and that's all you're allowed in there. And then at six o'clock in the evening, the whistle blows, the door opens, you step outside, you put your chair and table and your book and everything outside, you strip off naked, and then they give you a plank and two sheets. You put the plank in, you put one sheet on the plank and the other sheets to put over you. There's no pillow. And that's it. The door's shut again. So that's what you get for 23 hours a day. Oh, I got 10 days of that. Um, that's all right. I could do it. The, the thing that annoyed me the most was with the books. This is prison officers, you see. What they do is they go to every book and they tear the last page or two out mm -hmm. just so you couldn't get the end of the bloody story that you'd invested all your time in. 
that's how petty they were, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I did that. But the, the result of doing that was when I got back into the main population of the prison, then the fact that I'd done 10 days and I hadn't come back, you know, crying and loopy. People used to, there was there were a few other people in the block when I was there. There was 10 cells in the block. It was like the Green Mile. You ever see that movie, The Green yeah. Mile? Yeah, so it was a bit like that. Only, only, you know, you couldn't see anybody else. You were never let out of yourself for that hour. You were never let out when anybody else was out. So you never saw anybody else. The only, the only reason you knew they were there, they were there, was because if there was somebody in the cell, the cell door was locked. If there's nobody, if the cell was unoccupied, the door was left open. Mm-hmm. Um, but you never saw anybody. But at night time, you heard people crying for their mothers or, or whatever they were doing, or crying out or whatever. And then you heard people shouting at the other people who were crying for their mothers to shut up or they would kill them when they got out. Not, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So um, anyway, so having done 10 days there, that kind of um, that kind of sent a message to everybody, you know, oh, well, this guy, you know, don't if we mess with him, he's not he's not bothered about he's not frightened about going to the block. So it, 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 I got on all right there apart from these guys then there was um there were some guys from newcastle a clique of people who'd come down from newcastle causing trouble they ran the they ran some scheme where they worked in the kitchens and they um they divvied out food like for favors and because you know you went up with a tray and they slopped the stink thing on the tray and like that and and so what they do is make sure some people got extra food, like extra potatoes or extra whatever. And food's a big deal in prison. It's a real big deal because it's terrible. But it's, it's you know, when, when, when people take everything away from you and they say, but we'll give you three meals a day, that, that food becomes really important. Yeah. So, um, but they had this scam going where, where they would, you know, you'd get some guy who's not very good, not, not you know, not very strong, not, and so he'd come along and he'd, he'd put his tray out to get like, you know, potatoes or whatever it was. And the guy just tell him to move on. So they get no potatoes. And, and because those potatoes are going to some other guy who's either give him some money or give him some tobacco or something. So um, one time I, there was a guy there that was in our, on, on my landing and um, he wasn't really able to st- stick up for himself. But he'd had some bad news or something. I can't remember. He was in a bad place. <clears throat> anyway, this he, he was in front of me. He went to get these roast potatoes. The guy told him to move. I just couldn't be asked with it. So I reached over and grabbed a whole big pile of roast potatoes, put it on his tray, told him to get going. They, then, I, you know, that caused a whole lot of trouble. And then, But there's all guards there, so, you know, like screws there. So they could... They couldn't kick off right there and then, but that night when I was going up to my landing, they were all, I was on the top landing of three. They were all on the second landing waiting for me. Mm-hmm. So that was that was interesting. So um, one of them had a, um, a, you know, a shiv, they called them. So sort of like they'd make weapons out of like, they'd, mm-hmm. they'd get the toothbrush and sharpen it down or or find find something, a piece of wire or something, and they just kind of uh, put it on the end, of, melt melt the toothbrush, the plastic toothbrush, and put the wire into it. So it was, you know, so they could slash you with it and stuff like that. 
Um, so they had one of them and they were passing it around and giggling and laughing and all that. But I already knew, you know, the more people preamble, the less likely they're going to do something. Because if somebody's serious about doing something, they just do it. Mm-hmm. So I waited for two guys to, who were coming up behind me to, to go up. Because I didn't want to walk up the steps because there'd be a point walking up those steps where my head was on the same level as their feet. Mm-hmm. And that's what was going to come at me, I knew. So I waited for these two guys to come up and then I rushed up behind them. And I I just grabbed the guy who was doing all the mouthing and and said, right, let's go. Let's you you and me, let's go. So he didn't he didn't want to do it on his own. So I made it clear he'd have to kill me, otherwise I'd come out of hospital and then I would kill him. And I, I don't know if I meant it, but I kind of meant it at the time. Um anyway, he backed off. And because he backed off, everyone else backed off. And and a couple of about a month or so later, they they changed that policy of having everybody in one in one place, all the bad guys in one place, and they started spreading them out again. So all those guys buggered off, and um, and then we were only we were down to people from like Manchester, Liverpool area. But even then, you see, they just changed. They just reorganised. And it's all about whether you're a United fan or a City fan or Liverpool or Everton or, you know, a rugby fan or a football fan. or You know, people just tribalise. Mm-hmm. So, but, it was, you know, it was all right. I, I just knew, I knew very early on I didn't want to be there anymore. And so I realised it was me who put me there. And, um, and so it should be me that keeps me out. And it was only luck, really, that, um, you know, it was only a few weeks after I got out. I got out on licence, like on parole, so um, because I got out early, out early, because they always do. They always try and keep the turnover going. There's that many people coming into the system. They want to get rid of people out. So um, I got out before the two years on licence. So I had, a, like, a probation officer, parole officer that I had to go and see every week. So within a week of being out and I'm talking to my friend John and he's going mad about karate and kung fu and all this kind of stuff. And I've gone down to see Mr. Vickers and stuff. And I'm thinking, yes, I definitely want to do this, but I can't do anything without permission of the uh, probation officer. You know, even if you get a job, you have to have his permission to work at that place or whatever it is. You can't, you're not free to do what you want. And you can't say no either. Otherwise you go straight back inside. So I'd only been out about a week or two and I'm going to meet him and I, and I said, I, said I, I know why, you know, I know what's all happened and everything like that, but I want to start doing karate. <laughs> <laughs> he said, what? Anyway, I explained to him as best I could why I wanted to do it and everything. He was a really nice guy. And um, he said, okay, you can try. You can try, but if there's any problems at all, that's it. So I went. And there were problems, you know, he never found out about it. I didn't turn into a nice guy overnight. I very, very lucky to have not gone back inside. It took a, a couple of years to, you know, I was still fighting in the street. I still, you know. Mm-hmm. One time... I, I never, I never liked the idea of weapon like you, you know, bottles and 
and knives and things like that. But um, so you you know, I came up against people who do that. So now is that I got stabbed at that time and um, in a fight and you know, so if I had been caught then, you know, um, even though I well, I still, I still, you know, left the guy unconscious on the street, but I was, sta I was stabbed and I didn't want to, I couldn't go to the hospital to get stitched because there's always cops and everything hanging around the ED. And um, so actually we got, we got in a car and we drove to North Wales. <laughs> we went to, we drove to Rill and, um, and, I, and then um, I went there and got it fixed up. But anyway, yeah, so it, it took a while to, to, um, even though I knew what I wanted to do, it took a while to get me around to doing it. So, but it, it, it was a bad place to be and I wouldn't recommend it to any, for anybody. So what would, I always ask uh, this question because my karate is orientated towards mental health and the benefits of karate. Mm. Um, what, what would you say that, uh, what was the impact of uh, starting karate on your mental health or mental state? Well, I've been asked similar questions before, you know, and, and all I can say is that karate for me was like a scaffolding. It, it, it gave me a it gave me a structure to to work out all my, you know, anger or angst or whatever it was. Um, it, it gave me an avenue to work that out. And I know some people say, "Oh, karate," you know. Karate does this for you, or karate does that for you, but I don't really hold that view. You know, I changed. I changed me. Mm -hmm. Karate didn't change me. You know, uh, karate provided a um, a means by which I I could change, but it didn't change me. I I made those decisions. At some point, I decided no, I'm not gonna. When somebody pisses me off, I'm not just going to bury my fist down their throat. I'll just walk away or, you know, I'll just leave it. I'll just, yeah. I just won't react the way I used to. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, mental health, I guess, uh, I, I wouldn't term it in those ways, but it gave me a sense of balance and I didn't have that balance. You know, I didn't have that sense of balance before. It was like, uh, you know, you look at me or I, I perceived you looked at me or you wronged me in some way or I'm in a bad mood or something. Somebody's going to pay for it. It's not my fault. You're going to pay for it. Bang. So, um, you know, karate, the things I started learning in karate started to make me think about, oh, well, maybe, you know, that guy keeps beating me up in Kumite. Um it's not because he's great. It's because I'm not doing something. There's something lacking in me. That's why. That's why his punches is getting is getting at me because my blocks are not good, mm -hmm. or my positioning are not is not good. My timing's crap. So I started to think in terms of well, this is me. If I, you know, it's not the other guy. It's not that it's the, the problem is not external, or or how to solve the problem. Is not an external, you know, it's not external, it's internal. I have to find a way to make this happen that this guy can't get me anymore. Um, mm. You know, so in that way, very slowly, I saw, I wrote about it once and said, it's a bit like snowflakes, you know, they come down one at a time, there's nothing in them, you know, 
but give it a few hours and now you've got enough snowflakes to collapse a building. So that feeling sort of, karate sort of fell on me like snowflakes um, very, very slowly over a long time. And then at some point you just, you know, I, I can remember clearly some guy mouthing off, not at me, but he was mouthing off in a, in a pub. And I remember very clearly, th- I, and I think I may have laughed to myself and everything and thought far out, you know, this time last year, that that guy be wearing a pint pot. <laughs> and he's not. And I've got absolutely no inclination to do anything about it whatsoever. So, I don't, you know, but I couldn't put my finger on you know, that was when I realized it first, but I couldn't put my finger on when when that changeover happened. You know what I mean? It must have happened before that at some point. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, karate was, um, uh, yeah, that, uh, a scaffold. It was a means. It was a, it was a skeleton that I can ha- could hang my character on and, uh, you know, my um, de- start looking at life in a different way, dealing with life in a different way. So, and as far as mental health is, obviously it, it improved it because I became more balanced in how I lived through life. So there's less drama, if there's less drama, there's less stress. If there's less stress, you, you're happier, you know, more relaxed. If somebody does upset you, you're not likely to blow up, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, mental health uh, wise. And uh, also it, it gives you the, t- it introduces you, if you're not used to it already, it introduces you to that personal discipline, that, that kind of thing of, look, if I want this, then I have to do, I have to do it. I have to do the stuff that does it, that provides it, that brings it my way. I can't just ask for it or, you know, buy it or get somebody to give it to me or show it to me or something. And I, I realise there's a big difference between knowing something and knowing about something. And a lot of people know about stuff, but they still don't know it. And I, you know, I come across karate people. A lot of karate people know about karate, and then you ask them, "But why? Why do you do that?" And their answer is, "Oh, because sensei so and so." Yeah. You were that sensei so and so. Why do you do it? Well, because that's the way we do it in our style. Oh, for God's sake! Yeah. Okay. But, you know, I've known another guy in your style and he does it slightly different from you. So are you right and he's wrong? Or which way is it? What, what? You're not answering the question. Why do you do that? Or why don't you do that? Or whatever it is, you know, and they, they have no ownership of it at all. They have, it's just, um, no, it's the way we do it. Fine. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a lot of doing, but not a lot of thinking, I think. Um yeah. It, it it drives me nuts as well that um, people are just copycats and carbon copies of their teachers instead of using their their own thoughts and making karate their own. I'm not an expert, but uh, that's that's what I think. Mm. Well, I think you know, there's a there's a difference. There's a there's a bit of a, a difference, and I don't know. You know, I I, I have a very uh, years ago I had quite a high profile in karate because of all my magazine work. All the books were coming out and, you know, so I would get, I had my, my blog at that time was public and that was getting like 30,000 hits a month. Mm-hmm. And so 
the amount of emails I would be getting from all around the place is, you know, seriously silly. But, you know, people don't seem to take ownership of what they're doing. They just, they just sort of do and they assume everybody else, uh, everybody else is doing the same, you know. And, but I would always make a distinction between, you know, making karate your own is one thing and making your own karate is a different thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so some people make their own karate. That's fine. If that's what they want to do, that's that's their choices. We, we are what we choose to do, you know. But I've never felt like I can make my own karate. But I believe I've made karate my own because when I train with my uh, contemporaries in Okinawa, they have all, all sorts of ideas and everything. I have different ideas. Their, their stuff works. My stuff works. You know, it's kind of facile to say, yeah, but this is right and that's that's wrong. And, you know, if it doesn't work, then you have to, so maybe it is wrong. <laughs> you know, if you can't make your stuff work, why are, you do, why are you doing it? You know, if it works, where's the argument? I don't, I don't understand it. But there is a difference between, and I think some people do make their own karate. Mm-hmm. And they're not, really in a position to do that so you know because because they either they haven't trained long enough in it or they're just not gifted they haven't absorbed enough of what they've learned you know and um but but they want to you know they 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 want to make their living out of it or something or they want to you know they want to i don't know their reasoning but they want something and that's probably the problem that right there is they want. So, but that's different. That's different from what I do. I don't, so I don't know why people make their own karate, but everybody's always been making their own karate, you know? Mm-hmm. So right back to, you know, Okinawa and everything else. So all Okinawan karate is, is karate that Okinawans made. It's just, they made it hundreds of years ago in some cases. And, you know, 80 or 90 years ago in other cases, but so. Mm. So if I may ask, why did you um, decide to uh, withdraw from all the activities in karate publicly? That's what you, you sent, it to me, sent to me, yeah, told me in, uh, in your email that you kind of stay away and I'll just do your own stuff. Yeah, I do. I, do. I mean, I'm only here now because of James and uh, I'm only, I only got to know James through somebody else I've known for years. And um, uh, because, especially, um, there was a book I, I wrote about Hojo Undo, you know, Hojo Undo, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the jars and the tools and stuff like that. So I wrote a book about that about 10, 12 years ago. And that, when that came out, that and it's still selling very, very well. It's sold. Um, well, I'm still getting royalties from it. And it's sold tens of thousands of books. It's still selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, then there seemed to be a huge surge in people, you know, invitations to do this and invitations to do that. And uh, you know, even though I te- even though I teach karate to a small group of people, um, they're all people who've been training a long time themselves. Mm-hmm. They're not. I don't call them my students. Um, they just, for some reason, look to me for a bit of guidance, so that's fine. Um, 
but I've, I've always been a reluctant teacher. I've always been a reluctant um, guy out the front. I don't really believe in, you know, I, I'm not a font of all knowledge, right? So, and I can't teach people karate. I don't believe I can. I can see somebody doing something and I can, I can notice something and say, you know, you know, you do this with your elbow or you do that with your ankle or you do, you know, something. And, you know, that kind of detracts from something. And, you know, me, I do it, I do it like this. Have a try like that. See if that works better for you or it, or it not. I can do this stuff like that, but I can't tell people how to do, you know, this is the right way to do karate. Like do, do this like this. And it's, you know, guaranteed because, because I'm five foot six and 66 years old. And the guy I'm talking to is 28 years old and built like an Olympic athlete. Mm -hmm. So me telling him, you know, this is the way I do it. Move like me. Why does he want to move like a 66 year old? Yeah. He's 28 and he's like, you know, 10 times fitter than me. So, you know, I don't believe I don't believe that you can kind of teach karate in that way. You can point people in the right direction and you can give a bit of advice and you can, you know, maybe show some demonstration and, and maybe they can see something in it. But at the end of the day, you know, my Miyazato sensei always used to say, you know, and that's where I get it from him because he would tell me that he couldn't teach me anything. He, he said, it's up to me to discover it. So I have to discover it for myself. And if I can't find it in me to discover what, you know, what I need to do to improve there, it's not going to happen. And, you know, I could be in the dojo 10 hours a day with Miyazato Sensei, you know, like you're not going to, from, from a Gojuru point of view, you know, he's royal family. So you're not going to get much of a better teacher for it, in my point of view, you know, that level, direct student of uh, Miyagi Chojin Sensei. You've got him there. You're in the dojo eight hours a day, seven days a week, but you just haven't got it in you. So what's the point of being there? You know, there's something in you that you can't find it. And until you solve that problem, who, who you're training with and how long you're training for, you know, it's kind of irrelevant, really. So that, you know, yeah, that's the, that's the way I look at it. That's the thing with the old old question of lineage, isn't it? You can have a best lineage, but if you don't have talent, um, that's not guaranteed that you're going to be good in anything. Yeah. Well, I come always at pains to um, point out when, if ever I'm asked directly. So, because you know, in my dojo on the showman, I have a a picture of um, Mizato Sensei, mm -hmm. and then beside that. Miyagi Sensei and beside that he go on a Kanryo Sensei. And then people say, Oh, who are they? And I say, Well, this is he gone a Kanryo Sensei and explain. I say, and one of his senior students was Miyagi Chojin Sensei. And then I explain, I said, one of his senior students was Miyazato Sensei. And then I was like his worst student. <laughs> because you know, people always say, Oh, yeah, I trained with blah blah blah. And he said, Yeah, but you know. You might have been the worst student he ever had, and he was really glad to see the back of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, but again, that's what I can. You know, people do what they do. So you can't. 
So how did, how did you get into the, because you said you haven't finished um, your qualification, you left school really early. How did that yeah. bring you into writing books, um, writing really good articles? Because kind of, I'm, I'm in the same way. I qualified actually quite from few schools, but never been um, taught properly English grammar and stuff like that. And I started to write a few books uh, myself. Mm. And um, I kind of feel like a, how do you call it? Um, not pretender syndrome, but um, ah, just lost the word. Like a fake person, you know. I'm not qualified oh, to write books. Like you don't deserve, you don't belong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you end up being... Uh, well, um, okay, so um, the first time we went to Okinawa was it in uh, 84, as I said, in, in February 84. Um, when I got back to England um, in the March, I think it was, end of March, early April, springtime anyway, um, I told you I used to train with Terry O'Neill. You know who Terry O'Neill is? Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. He's quite an old chap now, but back then he was, you know, he was in the Conan movies and stuff like that. So, yeah. And he had a great magazine called Fighting Arts International. And it was probably, and I say this, you know, quite sincerely, at the time when that magazine was in print, it was, you know, arguably the best martial arts magazine in the world, second to none. A, because Terry was a great karate guy himself. And so he knew karate, you know, he, he wasn't he wasn't gonna publish bullshit. Somebody just wrote in and said how great they were and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, and he was genuinely interested in, although he's a Shotokan guy, he trained quite a lot with Higona Sensei over, over the years. Um, but he's genuinely interested in other martial arts and that whole thing. So he he put out a really good magazine. So when I got back from Okinawa, we were just talking on the phone. And, um, you know, I said, I'd just come back from Okinawa. And he said, oh, would you write about it? You know, because I think then there'd been, I don't think there'd been more than 10 or 12 people from England had got to Okinawa. Most of the people from England who went to Japan then went to Tokyo. They were like Shotokan people, JKA, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So not many people went to Okinawa. And, and if the those who did, they were Weichiru people, because Weichiru was quite big in Liverpool and London, I think. And so they were the people who were getting over to Okinawa. And Gojiru people, not many. So, um, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll write you that. Yeah, and then, you know... You put the phone down, then you go, oh, God, how am I going to do this? <laughs> and um, so, I, you know, I'd written very, very little anything, a few letters and stuff. That was probably the most I'd ever written, the letters in prison since I left school. But um, so anyway, I just, I just, so I just got like a piece of A4, you know, booklet, mm -hmm. and I wrote it out, wrote all my thoughts down longhand. I kept notes while I was in Okinawa, so that was good. So I referred to my notes. So I wrote this whole um story report thing out and then i thought well i can't send it to him like that it looks like somebody's really bad homework you know and um and so i borrowed a typewriter um and then i spent about four days doing that you know trying to type it out and i managed to do it and then so in those days you know it was all like there's no email computers didn't exist 
and um, and then I posted it off, and uh, and then I got, I think I got a letter off him or something saying, yeah, that, that was great, yeah, it'll be in like whatever issue, and then a couple of months later it came out, and um, and it seemed you know because because not many people had been to Okinawa, so it was interesting for people. And then Terry said, oh, you've got a really nice way of talking about things and explaining things. There's a Wadaroo Sensei coming down to your part of the world um, next week or whenever it was, and he's doing a course. Would you interview him and take photographs and stuff? Yeah, sure. So um, I made a rain. I phoned the local Wadaroo uh, Sensei up and introduced myself, explained what was happening. He was all for it, of course. So he, uh, the Japanese man was called uh, Takanizawa Sensei. He, he's dead now, but he used to live in Birmingham. He was really quite famous back in the day. He had people like um, like most of, most of the British squad, all styles British squad mm-hmm. um, back then was students of his. Um, um, anyway, so I met him and interviewed him. I turned up with this huge tape recorder like you know, a big, big thing and we're sitting there and I've got my notes and press the button and the tape's going round and then I start the thing and it's really comical when I think about it. Um, but anyway, that went all right. And then I, I went back and by now I'd, I'd got a typewriter, a second-hand typewriter, so I could I typed that all up. And it was just question and answer, you know, me, I said, him, he said, and that's all it was. And a few photographs, and they went off, and that that got, got published. And Terry always paid, you know. Um, he paid, he paid for, he paid for what went in his magazine. Mm-hmm. Or he always paid me anyway. And um, so I thought, wow, this is good. I like this. This is really weird that people would pay you for writing, but I like this idea. So then I started thinking, well, I could look around and interview people. There's lots of people around. So I started doing that and Terry was very happy to do that. And then that led to um, Combat Magazine. Is Combat Magazine still going in Britain? I don't, I don't really know. No, the Combat used to be online. <laughs> yeah, Combat used to be a big magazine. I don't think there's many print magazines anymore now because they're all online. But And then there was Traditional Karate was run by the same company. They were out of Birmingham. So... I had, a, I had a monthly column in both those magazines as well as feature articles going. And it just kind of, it just, I just fell into it. And then and then when I, if ever I was going to Okinawa, um, I would make sure I interviewed people, met people, or wrote up a report about going. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that always, that produced, every time I went to Okinawa, that would produce maybe five articles or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then of course you can sell them on, you know, because because they were being published in an English magazine, I'd also get send them to America and get them published in an American magazine. And then when I moved to Australia, I had a, uh, Australian magazines, New Zealand magazines, American magazines, English magazines. So I could send, I could write one article and get paid three or four, five times for it. Great, mm. but you know you're not going to live off that alone. You have to, you, you know, you. It's it's great getting a nice check and everything, and you think, wow, that's great for just like you know four or five pages of writing. 
But if that was your only income, you'd be struggling. So, um, you know, we, we've we never lived, uh, my wife and I have never lived, um, well, we always live comfortably, but we've never lived, you know, we don't drive his and hers Mercedes or anything like that. So, but we had a great, we've had a great life. You know, we've done what we've wanted to do. We haven't spent our time passing each other. One going out to work, one coming back, grabbing a Sunday off together, you know, stuff like that. So we managed to pay off all our bills and and we live debt free and have done for over 30 years. So um, so that's how I got into writing. And then and the first book I wrote was uh, called Roaring Silence. And uh, again, there was a one of the magazines in England that was quite big for a long time was called Oriental Fighting Arts uh, out from London, uh, a guy called P.H. Crompton. He published books as well. He was a Tai Chi guy. I think he's still alive. I don't know. He was quite old. I haven't heard from him for a long time, so I don't know whether he's still going. Um, and I just thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this up about stuff about what i've been doing because there was i'd read moving zen at the time i don't know if you've ever read that yeah yeah i've got coffee and i thought wow that's great you know it's like a diary kind of thing and um so i thought i'd do that and didn't really expect anything of it but i sent it to him anyway he wrote back and said yeah this is good we need to work on it a bit more polish it up get the grammar better get the punctuation all the all this kind of stuff spelling everything so we, that, that went back and forth for a few months, you know, working on that. And then he, he published that in about, I think about 1980, don't know, 86, 87. And, but it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't presented very well. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a good book to have in your hand in it, anything. It was done on the cheap. He didn't really publish it much or anything. And he didn't market it very well or anything like that. So it kind of died a death a bit. But then as I started to get more of a notoriety, I guess, or whatever, through the magazine work, then people started looking for the book. So then he put out a new edition of the book that was a bit more attractive and, you know, a bit larger format and nicer photographs and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then again, you know, that only lasted for a while and, and um, that kind of died away. But then I, I wrote another book called Buddha Masters, which was a, um, a series of interviews I'd done with various people. Um, and that, that went quite well for a while. But these books, you know, they come and go and fall out of print and fall out of circulation and mm -hmm. stuff. But then... And so I didn't write a book for a few years, but then I, I thought of that idea about the Hojo Undo. And um, I did that and I'd read a few books that were published by a company in um, America, YMWA. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I, I just submitted um, a sample to them and the publisher got back and said, yeah, this is an interesting idea, let's talk. So we talked about it and, and then, about a year later, I, I, I submitted the final thing with the drawings and all, everything. And then, yeah, he published that the following year, about 2012, I think, or no, 2010. And um, 
and like I say, that's still selling very, very well. That's been a really popular thing. And then on the back of that, I wrote another book called Shingitai. Mm-hmm. And then on the back of that, I wrote Redemption, which is kind of a, it's the same story as that very first book, Roaring mm-hmm. Silence. But it's, I've now got 20 odd years of writing experience, different. So it's much expanded and written better. And, and the, and the publishers are, you know, much been much kinder with it and laid it out and done it all. And it's a nice product to have in your hand. And it is, it looks good and it feels good. And it, you know, the story's written better. So, um, so that's how I got into writing. I, I kind of fell into it. If it wasn't for Terry O'Neill, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have spent my life doing that. It seems to so, be that the, the, the best things happen to us, it's always by um, accident or destiny or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And that kind of from unex, unexpected side, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think so because, um, you know, I've never been a kind of a goal setter. I've never been a person who says, right, by Easter, I'm going to have done this, 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 and this. I know some people, they find that useful. But again, from what I've learned through karate and the teachers I've been lucky enough to learn from, they've always just said, you know what, just do it. Just, you know, get up in the morning, do your training, go about your life, get up the next day, do your training, go about your life. And that's it. It's just a natural part of your life. Don't be looking for, oh, yeah, well, this time next year, I'm going to have my black belt or this time you know, five years from now, I'll be this and blah, blah, blah. You know, from the way they see it and the way I see it too, it's not helpful. It's not helpful, hmm. you know, to, to because it, it kind of, it, it, takes, it takes what you want to be and it places it on the horizon way over there. And now you've got to spend all your time getting to the horizon. But, you know, life is like when you get to the horizon, guess what? You don't ever get to the horizon because, you know, the horizon just keeps moving. So if you set your happiness or your, you know, oh, well, when I get my black belt, I'll be happy. When I make my first million, I'll be happy. When I buy my house, I'll be happy. When I get my car, I'll be happy. So you're not happy now then? How long is it going to take before you're going to be happy? And it just doesn't. You know, it tends, experience tells me that people who do that spend most of their life unhappy. Yeah, that's uh, very true, I think. Um, I'm guessing that uh, you don't want to be bothered by people. So um, would you like to share a how people can get in touch with you, how they would uh, were able to find your books and, and your work? or Well, they can, the they can find them. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. Uh, well, they can find the books on Amazon or bookstore. You can just go in any bookstore, ask for it by title or by my name, or they can pull it up on there. You know, all these books are distributed around the world through all the major chains and everything, and they'll just pop on Amazon or Goodreads or whoever on the net and and type in my name and and karate. If you, if you go, even now, even though I've been at, out of public karate for years, if you just Google Mike Clark Karate, you'll get mm. thousands of hits, you know. Yeah, that, that's um, what I was doing 
pre-order this interview. Yeah, so, and I don't know where half the stuff comes from. So, <laughs> you know, I don't have, you know, I don't know how all that works. So, mm -hmm. um, so if people wanted to get in touch with me, um, I don't know, there's my emails, uh, I think the email's on the back of the books or something, shinsedokan at bigpond.com. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to email me but you know i don't i don't do seminars and i don't i don't um look i'm happy to help anybody but um and if there were people visiting around where i live and everything i live about 80 kilometers south of perth in western australia mm -hmm. you know if there were people here on holiday and they wanted to train i'm always quite happy to you know host people at the dojo let them come and train and I don't want anybody's money or anything. I'm not interested in money. I've got enough, enough for me. So, um, you know, you can, if people wanted to do that, they could do that, but I'm not, you know, I don't know. Nobody wants to do what I'm doing. So I'm just training. I'm just a student, you know, I'm just a student. So, um, that's it. I've got all, I've got all that. I've got all that, um, other stuff. You know, but I don't know where it is, to be honest. I, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I, with my Kobudo, with one of the weapons is called a Teko. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's, yeah, it's like yeah. an old knuckle duster type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here in Western Australia, knuckle dusters are illegal. If you get caught with them, it's, um, what is it? It's either an $8,000 fine or four years in prison if you get caught with them. So when I moved, we used to live in Tasmania and we moved back here four years ago. Um, they were okay in Tasmania as long as like other karate weapons, as long as you were going to training or coming back and you had them in your bag, that's fine. But you can't just walk around with them, you know, like nunchuckers and stuff like that. So, but when they're here, the laws are different. So I had to take them to the police and hand them in and then make an application to the police minister, the local government to to get certified as what they call um, um, uh, a dedicated collector or something like that. So I had to prove that I'd had them for a long time. I had to prove I had a good reason for using them, you know, why I, why I had them and under the circumstances I, you know, I used them and what they're doing and all that. So I explained all that to them. And so the, the, the policeman who I was explaining all this to, the sergeant, he said, so, oh, okay. So he asked me what, grade I was in karate I told him he said can you prove that I said yeah I'm sure I can but I had no idea how I would prove it I had the certificate I knew I had the certificate mm -hmm. and I knew it was at home I had no idea where it was so I had to come home and go rummaging through all sorts of stuff to find this <laughs> certificate it never dawned on me to like, you know, how would you prove you are what, you know, how would you prove it? Cause it's, you know, I don't think of it in things like that. So, so I had to do that and I had to, I had to get a few other things together and, um, and show it him. But that was, I, you know, it's like this idea, like, yeah, prove what you said you are. Well, you should do kata. <laughs> yeah, I, could, I could do, but he'd probably just think I was break dancing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but anyway, that yeah, so but if people want to get in touch, you email me, email me or something, but um um 
you're yeah. that if, you're, if you're if you're in the Perth area or something and you see this and you want to get in touch, I I, I live in Mandurah. Uh, then anyone who's local would know where Mandurah is. And um, yeah, I'm happy to talk to anybody, but I'm not interested in being anybody's sensei. I'm not interested in, you know, that was one of the things you said, why did I walk away from it? Because I quite often get requests, you know, can we affiliate to you? No, we, oh, yeah, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. No, I don't do affiliations. You know, I don't, I'm just a student and I go to work. Well, you know, I was lucky I got to work in our last year, this February last year. And then the week after we got back, the, all the borders closed. So I was very lucky to get to Okinawa last year. Um, but, you know, I go to Okinawa. I train with my contemporaries there. And then I come home and I train. And the, and the six people who, who look to me for advice come and train. But they live all over Australia as well. There's only two who live around here. We get together every April and we train together for four or five days every April. And, um, and that's about it. You know, it's, it's very, you know, it's very kind of low key and, um, and authentic and real. I think nobody, you know, nobody's interested in, Oh, what's the next grading? What kata do I have to learn from the next grading? When do I do this? When do I do that? Who knows? I don't even know what grade half these people are that come and train with me. I have to ask them. And then they not sure either. That's the that's the way our conversations go. I say, what grade are you, Matthew? He says, I'm not sure. That's so great. then he goes and checks and then, oh, I think I'm second down. Oh, that's right, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's a great group. Well, they're good guys, they're good people, and they train for the right reasons and um you know, they, they're interested in training and, and bettering themselves. They're not interested in being, being anybody. Do you know what I mean? They're not out there being a, a somebody or something. So most people, you know, like here, you know, not, this is my study. I work here. That's why I all my books here and I write from here. But, you know, I don't have my certificates all around my house. I don't have karate things all around my house and if you walked in my house and this door was closed there's there's nothing to say i'm connected with karate or anything at all and that's the way the students are because it's personal it's almost intimate it's, you know it's it's just something for for us so but anyway sorry i'm talking again this has been the longest goodbye you've probably ever done <laughs> well, it's brilliant. It's fascinating to listen to you, and I'm very, very grateful to you that you um, uh, done the exception and, and talked to me. And I'm no, grateful I'm to um, uh, James as well for connecting us together because it's well, I, I I saw I saw some good friends, Paul Paul Enfield and Michelle. Mm -hmm. I, I watched their their interview. I know Paul and Michelle. Well, I've known Paul since the mid eighties, but I know Michelle too. They stopped by in Tasmania when we lived there. Michelle's a real life, you know, she's a real force of life. Yes, she's, she you know, and Paul is really understated. You know, he's such a I, funny guy, really. I, I, Great I, karate. I think he's uh, now getting more, more recognition. Uh, he's starting to be very popular. They do a lot of um, 
in um, seminar tours. That's how I met them. Yeah. I've been twice training with them. And yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it's quite funny. And this is a thing that, you know, maybe if you edit this, you can edit a lot of this rubbish out. But this is the thing, you know, Paul and I have known each other since uh, I met Paul in Tokyo when he was training and living with Higona Sensei. And I went there to train with Higona Sensei before they went to America. So that's when I, I met Paul for the first time. And we've known each other ever since. Now, Paul's approach to karate where he does all the seminars, he does all that stuff on, on you know, the internet, and he's always putting things out about bunkai. That's completely the opposite Paul to me and my approach. Absolutely the opposite. I can't think about anything worse. And being, being a full-time karate instructor, I can't think about anything worse for me. But that doesn't stop me and Paul being good mates. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we're good friends. and we, we don't see each other for years and years and years. And then when we see each other, it's like we saw each other, you know, the day before last or something. We just pick up from wherever we left off and how you're doing and what's going on and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so this whole thing about, oh, well, they don't do it like me. So, they, you know, they must be sort of like crappy people or something. It shows a certain kind of childishness, a certain immaturity, I think. I think that's but, you know, that's, that, that's not to say that there are idiots out there, because there plainly are, mm -hmm. you know, but it, it's, not, it's not cut and dry, it's not black and white. But, mm -hmm. I, you know, personally for me, I just wish people would be a bit more honest and say what they're, what they're involved with karate for. You know, you make it very clear what, you know, what where you're taking your karate and why you're taking it there and what, what form, what what you want to do with it. But, you know, I wish people would generally be more honest about their karate and not not say, you know, it'd be like somebody coming to me and say they want to be in the Olympics doing karate. I said, well, I'm the, I'm the wrong guy. I'm absolutely the wrong guy to get you in the Olympics. You need to be going to this other guy down there who's, kids are going in tournaments every weekend and, you know, winning and all that, like, because he's obviously got, you know, he's obviously good at that stuff. So, and, and likewise, you know, I, I have a little bit of a thing about people who teach self-defense. I never teach self-defense because, mm. simply because my experience of fighting is, is a really serious fighting. Mm. When people get seriously hurt, they go away in ambulances, and other people get arrested and there's blood and there's there's disfigurement and there's you know it's real violence and so i sometimes i look at karate instructors who are teaching self-defense courses and they their their experience of self-defense is is either extremely limited or zero mm -hmm. and i i have a real question mark about that i know that i know there's good intentions involved but we you know where good intentions the road to hell is paved with good intentions right so and i just question that and i just wish people would be a bit more honest about you know yes come and train with me this is this is what i do and this is you know this is where i'm taking the karate if that appeals to you you know yeah come and train if it doesn't appeal to you if you want to be the you know the next gold medal guy or you know you, you want to walk down a street through the roughest area in town and not have a bother or whatever it is, then you need to go and talk to, you know, somebody who, who can help you with that. And, and, but unfortunately it's not the case. And, um, 
I don't know. That's a problem. It's, it's, a, not, it's not a problem for me because it, it's not part of my world, but it's a problem for the person who's searching, a problem for the person who's looking. It was fascinating to uh, listen to you. And I'm going to be, I, I have to admit, I don't have your books, but I will purchase um, Redemption definitely because your story is fascinating. Uh, oh, so, okay, thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, it was You're welcome. You. Well, everybody stay safe there, yeah? Yeah, thank you very much. And like, and I've heard it. I've I've heard it on good authority that sun will shine again in England, but probably not until August. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but let's hope. Okay. All right. All thank right, you very Liz. much. Thank you. All thank you. Bye bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, I hope it was valuable to you. If you would like to support uh, this channel, you can do that by um, looking at my work. Uh, I've got a few books published, actually Blank Belt, and Telling My Story in Martial Arts and Fight with an Anxiety. There is a collection of my articles as well, uh, kind of uh, writing up my evolution as a martial artist and author and uh, development of my English, written English. Um, that's all available on Amazon and we just published a karate journal. Uh, if you like me and write, like to write down your progression, set up goals and track your mood, you might enjoy this one. It's also available on uh, Amazon. Uh, we've got a merchandise, so you could uh, grab uh, t-shirts from our website, which is www.lesbubka.co.uk. All the uh, funds from sales of the t-shirts go into our um, program, which is the Karate for Mental Health, supporting um, people with less luck than we have um, some people losing jobs having mental health issues or physical issues and struggling in general in life if you would like to support that program i uh, will be much appreciated and as always thank you for listening and see you next time or hear you next time